Hey folks, welcome to episode 12 of the Letterpress Digest podcast. I had the great pleasure of talking with Jen at Starshaped Press. She is, without a doubt, one of the most talented printers I have come across. Her ampersand project remains one of my favorites. It's amazing how many pieces of type she has in those prints. Um, she's an absolute wealth of knowledge and has a really keen sense for the business side of letterpress as well. So I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. Here we go. Hey, folks, I'd like to welcome Jen of Starshaped Press to the podcast. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, so I am, one. number one, I'm a really big fan of a lot of your work, but I am so intrigued by your approach to letterpress because it seems like you, and actually it's in your, it's in your mantra if you go to your website, right? It's, you've been printing like it's 1929 since 1999. So to tell me about your approach to letterpress. Uh, well, the idea is that what what I've always wanted to do and what I've been drawn to in letterpress work is using materials that already exist and setting that up as the parameters for the design work that I do. So uh, when I first learned how to print, I was learning how to set type and actually work with that versus working from digital files. So the the materials that I work with are old, and what I try to bring to it is a new design sensibility. So I've never pushed into doing polymer work. I do very limited work with magnesium plates, and I try to really focus on what I can do with the collection that I have, uh, much of which is very early to mid-20th uh, century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and uh, so you, you but not just taking, I guess, you don't just take existing like letters and print them as like a, you know, a paragraph. You you kind of have like created your own style of, I guess, using the metal type and sometimes wood type, uh, what are they called? Designs? Not just, not letters, but... Um, um, like creating uh, type pictures, yes. I guess would be one way to say it. Yeah. And um, that's, uh, Albert Schiller gets the credit for that when he was doing uh, image work with metal type and ornament and called them type pictures and that's kind of stuck but okay. uh, that and that is something that I came to probably within the last 10 years or so uh, because I, I don't know why I'm not a strong illustrator but I could see how things could be done with this particular medium and I'm drawn to architectural elements. Uh, I live in an urban environment and I used to draft when I was younger, sometimes even for fun. Uh, And so this really played into that. It's a physical object that you can use to build something larger than itself. So Mm -hmm. that sort of was what opened my eyes to how can I create something that's representative, but only representative. It's not an exact match, but something where people could look at it and say, oh, I know what that is, um, right. at, the, at the same time using something that maybe wouldn't get used in a more traditional setting, if that right. makes sense. Yeah, 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 it definitely does. Well, tell me, so you mentioned you used to even draft um, sometimes for fun. So tell me about your background. I mean, how did you come to Letterpress? 
Uh, actually, circuitously through set design for theater, which is what I started out in school with, uh, which I loved, and I loved uh, the the building aspect of it. And so I do have a background in drafting, uh, did some prop design, and discovered that I was better at 2D work than 3D work. So that's when I shifted into graphic design in school and focusing on that. Uh, and at the same time I was doing that, it was sort of mid to late 90s where everything was going digital. So design schools are pushing web design and trying to figure out if, you know, do they teach design? Do they teach coding? You know, what does this look like? What software do we need? And I was not attracted to any of that because it didn't involve working with my hands. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, I started seeing a lot of music packaging and posters and alternative uh, print techniques being used to promote local bands or small clubs or just stuff that was a little outside of that mainstream, and it was really attractive to me. And uh, thankfully, one of those printers is here in Chicago, uh, Fireproof Press, and I got a job with them, and that's where I figured out what letterpress was because at the time I didn't even know how these things were being made. I just mm. knew they were awesome, uh, and then <laughs> right. I needed to figure it out. So that's when I went and figured out that, oh, this is how they're doing it, and this is what the equipment looks like, and uh -huh. this is what type looks like, and I, I saw it, and I'm like, I don't even know how that works, but I need to know, and so I, you know, I, when we learned how to set type, it was kind of like learning how to read. Uh, it was so great, and it just felt like this is an ideal way to pull all these elements together to build something that's physical, that produces something that's 2D, but has right. a tangible quality to it, and it's a way to get the designs that are in my head out onto paper that didn't involve using a computer. And and that said, you know, I had some pretty good computer skills at the time and was pretty well versed in design software and that was really helpful because I think uh I started doing a lot of layouts quickly on the computer using elements I had in the studio so when I was doing client work it was an easy way to show them you know, here's what it will kind of look like when I mm -hmm. print it. Right. Uh, and it was faster than actually setting up and proofing every single thing that I wanted to do for that client. So that's kind of continued and that sort of set me up for the future and how I can deal with clients. So that's where I come to it, you know, from design school and, and seeing an outlet for hands-on work mm -hmm. that was not... Um, available en masse to people at that particular time. There right. wasn't a whole lot of letterpress work going on, and, you know, it was kind of a the wild frontier. It had been as dead as it possibly could mm -hmm. be. The equipment cost nothing. Um, and so I was able to get things for so ridiculously cheap uh, and set up a studio space that way. And it's just kind of grown from there. Wow, yeah. So were you setting type at when you first started at, at Fireproof Press? Is that where you kind of learned, um, I guess, typesetting in general? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's a, a lot of the jobs that we were doing were a mix of stuff that would get designed in-house. Uh, and this all sounds more formal than it was. It was just kind of a handful of people that showed up and did things and uh, you know people had their own side projects too and would just use the space and it was shared with screen printers and so there was kind of a rotating cast of characters all the time uh, and then some of it was client work where they would have specific 
designs, and then we would just have plates made and learned the the very hard way on a lot of jobs of what would work and what wouldn't work using the materials we had because there was no precedent for it. There was no precedent for setting pricing, and it was it was just uh, it really was like the wild west of letterpress and figuring out how to make it commercially viable and. It was uh, it was challenging on that front, which is why Fireproof is not around anymore. Mm-hmm. But the the network of people that were coming out of that space, we're all still connected to each other and still doing work. So I think it started, it laid a foundation for people going off in different directions to do work, mostly still connected to letterpress, but right. in in different ways that would make it viable commercially and um, even emotionally to the people that came out of that, that yeah. space. What, you know, so tell me, tell me more about, I guess, making the leap from, from there to star-shaped press. I mean, especially during, I guess, 1992 or, you know, maybe mid nineties at the time, mm-hmm. letterpress is probably still not, it's definitely not what it is today, right? There's sort of not much of a resurgence probably at that point. So, Right. You know, tell me about that process of creating Star Shaped and sort of figuring things out as you go. Uh, well, I I graduated from college at the same time, almost exactly to the months that Fireproof closed. And so I was like, well, great, what am I going to do now? You know, because they don't have a job there yeah. and I want to keep doing this. And I... Uh, so I found a press, and it was in a friend's basement for a little while, and I did some printing there, and and um, I started taking on some of the work that had been coming at Fireproof, and John, who ran it, uh, just sent people to me, and so I would, whatever I was able to do with the equipment I had, I would do, so it would just be smaller projects, like, mm-hmm. you know, a thousand CD covers or something manageable on an 8x12 press. So uh, I did that for a while and then eventually got a smaller studio uh, where I had maybe six or 700 square feet and um, started uh, pulling in more clients from from there. And so a lot of it was design work that I didn't do uh, and it was just to kind of pay the bills and get things going. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was still the same kind of stuff we did at Fireproof. So I wasn't doing any of the really incredible, beautiful, high-end kind of printing that you see happening now because that hadn't really taken off yet at that point mm. either. Uh, and I think a lot of those effects are achieved through medium that a media that I didn't want to get into and I didn't want to start dealing with polymer plates and I didn't want to get into foil stamping or anything like that. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that the metal and wood type I had still got used. So even if I wasn't using it for client work, I was trying to build out a portfolio of work that showcased that so that I wouldn't lose that skill set. And then in 2001, I started going up to Apprentice, I guess, at the Platten Press Museum that's run by Paul Aiken. That's about an hour north of the city, and I started going up there once a week um, for... I don't know, a couple of years, uh, and just consistently went up to help him. And I knew more about type than him, and he knew more about printing than me. And so I helped organize his type collection, which is pretty substantial, uh, over 3,000 cases of metal type. And he helped me get better at printing and rounding out the skills I didn't have, the proper way to do make-ready and the proper way to lock up a form and 
uh, all the weird little bits and pieces of equipment and things that would help the printing become better overall in terms of its quality, and then I could combine that with the weird things we had done at Fireproof just to get weird things to print. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was sort of a nice balance between the the two of those things. Yeah, that's very cool. That's a, a common thing uh, we've heard uh, on, from other guests is, is sort of finding a local printer and just approaching them and say, hey, you know, how can I, how can we work together? How can I learn? You know, I, I'm really interested in letterpress. I mean, how did that work for you? Did you, had you heard about the Platinum uh, Press Museum or did you kind of just show up one day and say, hey, you know, what you got going here? Well, I went to the Amalgamated Printers Ways Goose in the summer of 2001. And it was, you know, all these old guys and there were just a couple of young people and I was one of them. And, you know, we, we were just sort of quiet in the corner watching everyone else to try to figure out what this group was like and if they would welcome us and you know if they cared who we were and then by the end of the weekend we realized they they deeply cared and they everyone approached us to find out what our deal was and what we were doing and why we were there and uh, and there was a talk given by a guy, Les Feller, who used to run a pre-museum down in Printer's Row in Chicago, and they had equipment and history of printing in the city, and it just sounded amazing. And then he talked about it in a way that made me feel like it was still there. So after the lecture, I went and asked him if I could help out at this museum downtown, and uh, and he was like, no, it's not, it's not a museum anymore. Go talk to Paul. And so that's when I went and introduced myself to Paul. Uh, and, you know, I think he was slightly skeptical at first about what I was doing and why I wanted to do it. And mm-hmm. uh, and then he kind of laid out some terms about coming up to help. And I said, yeah, I'll be there on Thursday. And then it just, it went from there. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and I think it is like, like what you were saying. It's, I think it's a, exceptionally critical that people getting into this field find someone they can glom onto to learn from uh, and commit to that because that's the other thing. It's it's not a few days here and there mm-hmm. to learn it. It's it's a major commitment, and you need to do that. You need to kind of get into a field where you're – or a situation where you're acting like an apprentice, like an old-school apprentice. Like get in there and be humble and learn whatever you can from that person. Mm-hmm. And then – do that for a while and then make your own choices and decisions about where you want to go with it from there. That's so true. You know, and especially with this field historically was always learned from through apprenticeships, right? And nowadays Mm -hmm. uh, our our sort of culture is a little bit different. So there's clearly some value in, in sort of the methodical approach to learning letterpress from people who've been doing it for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, which is fantastic. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, well, so th- that's a, uh, I, I really enjoyed seeing that story, by the way, on the movie, uh, the letterpress film, right? You guys, mm-hmm. not so much, I guess, th- there's a little bit of the story, but you're featured in the film as well as Paul and, and the, the museum. And uh, that was really neat to see. What was it like being on the film, by the way? I guess you're kind of a movie star. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> well, it was um, it was interesting to see it all come together because I had seen a lot of the the background information and still didn't really have any idea of 
of how the through line would be put together, and I think it's relatively true to what they set out to do, uh, which is great. And, you know, you want to collect the oral histories of people who are leaving this world, and it's it's important to have that, and it's done that. Uh, and I love seeing Paul on the screen. He's not particularly keen about it because he thinks he looks like a buffoon and people laugh at him. And I said, no, we're laughing because you're really funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and your passion, your passion yeah. for it is clearly coming across. And people get that. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's fun. And it's, you know, there were, I'm not going to lie, there were plenty of times where we wanted to kill each other throughout this time period that I was going up there. And we were almost too close, like father and daughter. And I'd roll my eyes and he'd be knocking his head on the wall, trying to figure out what I was doing. And, you know, there were some rough moments, but I think you, you gain something from that. Right. And you, you gain some understanding of, of who you are as people as well as who you want to be as printers. And that allows you to develop a deeper relationship where you just you have a deeper understanding of each other. And that helps me understand what Paul wants to do with the museum, what what his thoughts are, what his goals are, and so that when I'm there to help, I can focus on the things that I know will make him happy. Um, and that said, there's times when I go up there and tell him I'm cleaning out this whole area because it drives me crazy, <laughs> and I don't care what you think, and you can leave if you want and come back in six hours and it'll be done because <laughs> I can't take it anymore. <laughs> So, you know, his thought is, why would we clean and label all those things? Uh, like, because we need to. Because this is something that we need to know what it is in the future. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So there's still that that sparring that happens, but it's it's healthy. That's so funny. So you so you still continually go up? Is it like is it still every Thursday or? No, unfortunately, you know, life gets in the way because sure. the the business really started to take off, and it was harder for me to commit to that schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it lightened up a little bit, um, and you know, within that period following, I got married, I had a child, and so there's things that. Uh, cut into life and so it would be you know get up there whenever I can and we'd have a specific mission and uh, and I've tried to get up there a little bit more as I am able to winter is hard anyway because it's very very cold in there so (laughs) not really keen spend an entire day uh, with a bunch of really cold cast iron equipment Uh, so when it gets a little nicer then we get in there and air it out and clean it up and and uh, get on top of some of the projects that he wants to do. So it's not as regular as I'd like, but I am striving to get up there more. Yeah. Okay. Well, so tell me a little bit more about your current work now. So you mentioned so the businesses kind of take off. I think you're you're really well known, right? And I have I'm very familiar with a lot of your like for instance the ampersand project, which I want to talk about in a little bit. But um, tell me about your kind of approach to work now. I mean, do you? Are you doing uh, like wholesale cards? Are you printing sort of custom work for for um, companies or individuals, or are you kind of just doing your own thing? I am doing all of the things. Okay, all uh, of the things. Okay. All of the things, uh, which you know, from a business standpoint, is probably a bad idea, but in terms of my creative expression, is a good idea because. I need to have these different things. If I did all of the same kind of thing all the time, I'd lose my mind. Mm -hmm. 
so even with the, you know, I'd, I've always done commercial work. I wanted to do commercial design. I wanted to work with clients. I wanted to create pieces that they loved, that I liked, and then we move on, and there's a deadline, and I'm paid, and then I do another thing. Uh, and so I've done business cards, posters, packaging, uh, invitations, other social stationery. Uh, I've done all of those things, and I still do those things. Uh, and pulled type today for a, a baby announcement. Um, but that that all all of the the different things I do that those markets shift, and I've been around long enough to see that happening. So I do fewer of these things because of of other things that I can't control, but I need to account for. So, right. you know, people get invitations done on Minted now, and they're beautiful, and the printing's not as crappy as it used to be. And, mm-hmm. you know, so if you're doing, you need 20 birth announcements, you're not going to pay me to do 20 birth announcements because it's going to cost $200. You know, you're going to go somewhere cheap. So mm-hmm. those kinds of clients, those jobs are not, there as much as they used to be. The same with music packaging. Used to do a ton of music packaging. Well, now everything's digital. And so it's rare that kids will pony up to get really beautiful packaging for something that they just need to get out there. And, you know, it tends to be bands that are a little more established that are like, okay, now let's spring to get 500 limited edition awesome packages done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that market has shifted. And I, I don't want to compete with things that are outside of the league that I am in and what I'm capable of doing. So that forces me to look at other projects. So I also do some wholesaling. And wholesaling is not a major component of the studio, but it's a really important one. So, you know, we're we're taking wholesale orders. We work with a number of stores, mostly local stores, because our Chicago items uh, sell extremely well because people in Chicago really love Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's the strongest work that we have on that front. But, you know, we maintain a catalog, we send catalogs, we maintain a website for wholesale purchasing. So that's happening as well. Uh, and then I do things that I really love that are satisfying to me. And those are the things I'm trying to get out there to see how how can these things affect the studio? Are they lucrative? What kinds of projects are attractive to people, and what is that market like? So I start by asking these 8 million questions, mm-hmm. and that's what's led me into more limited edition series, like you brought up the ampersands. And that's uh, me, me looking at people who collect these kinds of projects, which is a different group of people than the wholesale market and the commercial market. Mm-hmm. And and I like these people. They're pretty fascinating to me. Uh, and they there's a number of them that have been really supportive of my work. And so they're purchasing for, for private collections, but they're also there's libraries at universities purchasing my work now. And that's kind of fun to think that there's that legacy getting out there in a library where people would access it in the future. So a lot of what I'm doing right now is actually gearing up for the New York or uh, the Manhattan Fine Press Book Fair in March, uh, and that's the first time I've gone to an event like this, and I'm pretty excited about it because it's setting up a different kind of table at a show, and it's figuring out what this audience might like, and how do I present these new kinds of projects. So those challenges are what 
drive me to show up every day in the studio. Wow, yeah, those are that's, a, that's figured a, out. very diverse. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, so uh, I'm really curious now. Are you are you rolling out some new projects at the upcoming March uh, book fair? I am. Ooh, okay. We'll leave that as yeah. a as a as a fun teaser. Then that's <laughs> I'll look forward to, <laughs> to seeing what that uh, what that will be. Well, so. I, Hearing your you talk about sort of the the your your business thoughts and and kind of weighing all of those dynamics, I'm really fascinated. I mean, how do you manage your creative interest versus you know the bottom line that pays the bills? Um, you you have to there's there's a part of the project that you you have to separate yourself from it, and you have to look at something. I mean, I I have some prints that. I have come to loathe over the years, but they sell. And so I think, well, you know what? I just have to emotionally distance myself from these mm-hmm. projects that I don't like for whatever reason, whatever reason. I don't like the content. I don't like how I printed it. I don't like where it fits in the larger vernacular. There's, but, but if these orders come in and those orders keep the lights on, then I need to pack those orders and let it go. <laughs> Just get it out there. Um, but then I think for the future, would if I don't like that, do I want to do another project in that vein? No. Mm-hmm. So that that sets the parameters for how I approach projects in the future. And I still do things where I think this is the most amazing thing in the world, and it doesn't sell. Mm-hmm. I don't even sell one copy. <laughs> and then sometimes I'll do something else where I'm like, well, this is kind of fun and interesting and cute, I guess. And then I'll sell a hundred in yeah. the first week. And I, you know, so that there, there's that game there to play and you, and you have to understand that it is kind of a game because you can't dictate what people like. You don't necessarily know where trends are going and something could change in the larger cultural environment that you have no control over that suddenly makes people think about something in a new way and then suddenly mm-hmm. they're buying a ton of that particular print. Right. And I've seen that happen even with greeting cards. You know, I print something, never sells. I keep it in the catalog, I question it, and then two years later suddenly it's selling like gangbusters. I, I don't know. <laughs> figure, figure so there's some aspect that's scientific and some that's just kind of like, you know, when things sell, they sell and you just make more. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, there's there's weird things you learn, like, oh, people prefer this size, or they want generally gravitate towards this, or, mm-hmm. you know, um, the fine press folks, you know, they want a paper that's a certain grade or above mm-hmm. that. So yeah. that's making me think, like, I've never been a paper snob. I could print on anything. You know, we <laughs> printed on some terrible stuff at Fireproof, and it didn't matter because yeah. the the message was what you were trying to get out. Uh, but the fine press folks are different. So that's a different concern that I need to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had no, I, I didn't know paper was such a complex topic. We had a, a previous guest uh, on the show talk about sort of, he was he sold paper for almost 30 years and mm-hmm. I had just no idea that there's just so many, so much goes into paper and there's just so many different weights and grades and it just yeah. uh, it's so complex. And I was just always uh-huh. like, you know, I just, I got a piece of paper, you know, I'm going to yeah. write on it and move on. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, there's, it's a totally different world. Yes. 
a complicated one. It is. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> what, what do you have a now that you've been doing this for so long? Do you have a preferred paper? Do you use cotton or non-cotton French or something like that? No, I don't. I don't have a preferred paper. It tends to be, you know, what's going to be successful for this job. Yeah. Uh, you know, and sometimes that's shipboard, and I don't care uh, <laughs> if it gets the job done and gets the message across, and it's easy and it's plentiful. It's recycled, and there it is. Uh, I've always been pretty loyal to French paper because they were loyal to us, the small printers. You know, mm-hmm. they one of the first to set up a website that was accessible to small printers. I mean, I remember when you couldn't buy less than a carton, you know, and I'm thinking, I don't need 526 (laughs) by 40 sheets to print 100 wedding invitations. (laughs) So, you know, that was was tough. You know, you're running around town. It was before you could order everything online. And, you know, and here they set up this site and they make it so easy and, you know, and it's colorful and and that's great. And and so I I love that. They have been huge supporters and a strength of the Chicago Printers Guild and everyone here who works with them and so there's always that loyalty and where where it's hard for me is you know the fine press crowd doesn't want French paper they, it's got to be Mohawk super fine or much better than that it's got to mm-hmm. be handmade and uh, and that's what I'm trying to figure out because um, it's not a strong point for me. I don't have any book arts in my background. I've just been piecing it together over the years, and uh, that's that's something I'm starting to pay attention to more. Uh, and I also, you know, some of the the commercial cotton papers they're they're getting better, but there's some that have been put out that are marketed as letterpress papers, and they're not that great. Um, and I don't like that. I, you know, I need a paper that can score. I need a paper that's going to translate well with metal and wood type. And most of the ones being made for letterpress are not. They're made for polymer. They're made. They're made for a different process. Um, I I don't like dusting little flicks of paper off metal type to get it to print. <laughs> and I'm also not going to just increase the impression because that's detrimental to the type that I have. Yeah. So. That's a that's a fine line as well. Um, I end up printing a lot on Stonehenge paper because it's affordable. It's got a lovely soft finish to it, but it's uh, it's smooth, uh, and you can score it. Um, and that's huge because some of the papers you can't. Right. Uh, and and I don't really love the super super thick papers either. I think sometimes it can be an excuse for poor printing. Uh, just put it on something that doesn't look like it came from minted, and then mm-hmm. we're golden. And I don't like that either. Uh, so I think it is still a critical part of your decision-making process. Right. You know, use the right paper for the right reason, and you know, with what you're trying to do. And price can play into that as well. I I think about that. You know, mm-hmm. if I put this, you know, I I did a little stab binding on a specimen book for wood type ornaments I designed, and and I thought, well. You know, I can. I need to make X number, and it has this number of pages. And what is my price point when I break them down? And can I sell it for this price point that I want to, and still turn a profit on it? Because mm-hmm. using all the most beautiful paper in the world can add up, and suddenly this thing you made costs a thousand dollars, and you've automatically eliminated a huge portion of your market mm-hmm. um, in terms of buying it. Right. And I don't 
want to create pieces that are completely out of reach for the people who have supported me for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Um, well, one thing that I'm really curious about, and you, I guess you've got your start uh, in the 90s. You mentioned your the, the equipment then was was not nearly as expensive probably as it is today. What kind yeah. of equipment do you have, and what is your kind of preferred pr- printing press, I guess? Well, my my first was a little six by nine Sigwalt. Uh, it's gorgeous mm. and it sits on a tabletop in great condition. And I got it for two hundred bucks. Wow! <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and I did a fair bit on it. So every once in a while, I'll still proof it. And actually, now that my daughter's eleven, she's very keen to do some of her own small projects that are not on the Vandercook, which sometimes is just too much for her to mm-hmm. deal with. Um, so she's asked about it and so we got new rollers and this summer we're going to get that up and running Uh, and then after that I got an 8x12 C&P which is pretty good and uh, it's an old style it's a bit beat up and so it's always been a little difficult to get good print quality on it uh, which I guess has probably helped me because it's forced me to really run through a lot of different problem solving techniques Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I got um, sort of circuitously ended up with the Vandercook SP-15 that had been at Fireproof uh, and floated around a bit. And then I said, well, I'll take it and use it. And if you need it at any point in the future, you can always come and get it because it's technically yours. But it's been here for <laughs> the last 15 years. So <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> It's just here. Um, and, you know, at the, uh, right around then I had gotten my guillotine, and I remember thinking I have about $400, which will buy me a guillotine or a Vandercook, so which should I get? And I got the guillotine, and then the Vandercook fell into my lap. But imagine that, like thinking that you have $400 and it will buy you a Vandercook. Like that's wow. where things were at. Yeah. Yeah. And then in this new space when we moved in here, we moved in a 10 by 15 that I bought from Paul at the – at the printing museum, and that is my workhorse. It prints unbelievably well. It's it's just been a tank the entire time that I've had it. So that's the main, the main one. That and the SC15 probably get the most use. The 8x12 with its slightly substandard print quality mostly is for die cutting and scoring now. Mm, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm intrigued your 10x15 is one of your workhorses. We have an 8x12 CMP mm-hmm. and I we struggle with it and now we've talked about you know what's its future now that we have a Vander we have also have a Vandercook SP15 mm-hmm. and the Vandercook is just so so good so precise yeah uh, yeah that you know using the CMP for maybe for scoring and dying maybe that that's its future I don't know but we it's probably also just our printing lack of expertise you know we don't have 20 years experience so it's like <laughs> I can blame the press but is it really the press I, I don't know it's hard to it's hard to say it's like you know I didn't realize how much of a struggle the 8 by 12 was until I got the 10 by 15 and that changed a lot and I did get new rollers on the 8 by 12 maybe four or five years ago and that helped immensely and there are occasionally times where I'll be doing a two color job and it's easier to just set up one color on each press and kind of bounce back and forth until I could get it set up the way I want it to be and 
and uh, and I'll do that. But it's it's just that much more effort. So if the ten by fifteen is free, then I go for that. It's a really great size of press. You can do so much on it and mm-hmm. get really good print quality. But it's not so massive that it's a pain in the ass to clean or move or maintain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Well, okay. So I I mentioned this earlier. I want to come back to this. The ampersand project. Uh, mm-hmm. I. I am so intrigued by your process for creating these. I mean, so you've used basically uh, tons of tiny metal type ornaments to create this larger picture of, of ampersands that are fairly large. Um, mm-hmm. so how did you go about that? Uh, I wish I could remember where the seed that started it. Um, I don't. We. I needed a print that was something that would feel more California, and because we, we were going to go do a craft show in California a number of years ago, and okay. I thought, well, maybe I don't know how they roll, but in Chicago, if I print anything <laughs> with Chicago on it, it's going to sell. So yeah. I thought, well, I should have something that targets that specific market. Uh, and so I thought, well, what about like. What if I could do a series of ampersands, which are perpetually popular, but have them somehow be indicative of a a place or a time or a location that would inform how the ampersand would be designed? And so I thought, well, what if I use ampersands that were designed by people for a region um, that were somehow married to that region? But then I couldn't set them up in that sort of Tetris-like way because I needed to stay true to that designer's vision for what their ampersand was. So Mm -hmm. that's when I thought, well, I'll just cut pieces of wood to create a form that's in that shape of the ampersand, and then I'll fill it from there. And if I build it on a galley, my SP-15 is the galley press where you could take the plate out and throw a galley in there. And so I can put them all together on galleys and print them that way. And so... I had started with Gaudi's uh, Californian and thought, well, what's what's so um, iconic of that area of, of San Francisco where we were going to be? And I thought, oh, these little trolley cars and these row houses. And so I thought, well, mm-hmm. let's build those into it. And it was really hard uh, to do. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, oh, man, this is a thing. I, You know, what what could I do with this? How could I round this out? And you know, and I I thought about it more, and I was like, yeah, this this could be a whole series. And so then, shortly after that trip, uh, I went to Wells Book Art Center, and they had a typeface that was designed by Victor Hammer that was very regional to that particular center. And so I thought, well, great, that's another one. So I'll do that ampersand and make it look like we're on the lake because we're in the Finger Lakes and. Uh, I'm like, this could be a whole series, and clearly I have to do Chicago because, again, it'll sell really well, mm-hmm. and it has. Um, so we'll do Cooper Black because Oz Cooper is such a huge uh, driving force and part of the history of the typography in the city. And so that was the next logical thing, and then that's where I think my brain started to go in the direction of how do I make a whole series? What does that look like? How are they bound? What's the market for them? And and whatnot, and that's when it turned into the well-traveled ampersand. So it was ampersands from around the globe that would uh, do exactly what I've been outlining here. So I started looking at other ampersands that would be tied to this 
these specific areas and built a prospectus that I could share with some of my buyers and the world at large about what I was doing and how they would all be collected into a portfolio. But I could also sell them individually, so if somebody really liked one, they could buy it and hang it. Mm-hmm. And so it wouldn't just be stuck in a portfolio forever. Uh, and I try to look at work that way. You know, What are the different price points I can offer? I can sell this print for $35, or you can buy the whole series for $400. So that gives me a little range to work with. Uh, so I started looking at it from there and, and found some really great ampersands that I thought would be fun and challenging and provide me with enough visual stimulation to create something that would be challenging to myself in terms of the typesetting. Uh, and some of them really were. Some kind of came together quickly, and then others I would set most of it, and it was a mess, and I had to take it all apart and start all over again. Wow. Um, which is very humble, <laughs> but, I, but I think an important part of the process. <laughs> wow, yeah. I mean, I just I've, I, I remember seeing a picture of your one of your uh, lockups, I guess, of the, the actual type, um, not on paper, mm-hmm. and, and I just I kind of stared at it dumbfounded, thinking like, how, how, how do you even begin? Like, what, <laughs> where do you? It's just it was so many pieces, and I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's an it's an amazing, uh, I, I would say, piece of artwork. But it, it, it I, it's so labor intensive to me. It seems uh, it, it's really. I mean, it's a, it's an awesome project. Um, I applaud you for doing it. I don't think I could ever come close to even thinking through how to put all those pieces. Do you know how many actual metal type pieces you use maybe on average in one? I know it probably varies, but it does. I mean, it's probably a couple hundred. Um, and then, you know, some vary depending on how big or small they are. And, uh, you know, the ones with the smaller type, uh, is, is tough because it's so tiny. Uh, and getting it to kind of stand in the form while you're inserting other things. It's, it's like, uh, you know, you're playing Operation, you know. <laughs> you're like, oh, damn, damn. Fell yeah. down in there, and you're in there with tweezers trying to get it out. And, you know, so that it helps to have a little foresight as to how it's going to come together and mm-hmm. kind of, like, I will sketch things out and pull ornaments and say, well, here's these anchors, these bigger ones will go in first. And, those will help the other pieces stand up while I insert other things. And I'll get it pretty, because you, you can only lock it up so much because you're sitting on a galley. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would get it as far as I could, but leave a little bit of wiggle room and proof it just to see what it looks like. Um, and so then I could go back in and tighten it up or alter things as needed because sometimes even with 20 years of experience, you don't know what something's going to look like until you actually pull proof of it. Mm-hmm. And it can be really fantastic or it can mm-hmm. just be, eh, you know, type was going to look this way and it doesn't. So yeah. here we go again. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's a, it's definitely a very cool, uh, very cool project. And you said you used, you would like cut out wood forms, I guess, mm-hmm. to kind of shape the ampersand and then you would fill it in with the ornaments. Is that right? Yes. So I would make a pattern that would fit on uh, the 9x13 galleys and then use that to cut on wood. Most of it I would just do of a small bandsaw and would cut it out that way and then piece those together and uh, double stick tape them down to the galley so they're not moving and then work around that. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm really so since you primarily print like it's 1929 with uh with type mostly, how did you acquire or come about all of this type that you now use? Uh, well, again, it used to be so much cheaper and easier mm-hmm. to find, although I think metal type is still really cheap and easy to find. Uh, and so I would just go to different letterpress functions and fairs and buy stuff that way. I inherited a little bit of uh, type from Fireproof or, you know, someone would say, oh, this this guy's selling this. Do you want any? Sure, if it's decent. You know, I don't just take everything. I try to really think hard about what it's going to pay the rent, which is why mm-hmm. I look at type and I'm like, if you're not going to pay the rent, you're not coming into the studio. <laughs> so, you know, it's got to be useful things. And sometimes, yeah. you know, Paul does a sale every year in May and I'll go up there and I buy 10-point news gothic because it will round out a collection that I have of news gothic. And now suddenly I have a family and that makes the design process that much easier if I need to alter things. So it's just keeping my nose in the ground and, you know, sniffing out these things when they become available, but I don't work that hard at it. Uh, It's, there's a lot of serendipity in what I have because you have to budget. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I got some alpha blocks, 12 point from Paul once for, I don't know, 15 bucks for the linear and then wanted the solid to go with it because it's kind of a two-part set. And the Dale Guild was still around and they cast it in. It was $175. So I'd have to look at it like, okay, I spent $185 and I got both sets. So it kind of balances out. But it's rare that I would spend that much because sometimes I think things serendipitously show up when you wants or need them right, right so i it's rare that i actively go out of my way to find something specific yeah. because there's you know I, and i get type from sky and i get type from jesse at three ton and i get stuff from the bixlers when i'm visiting them and you know you just kind of piece it all together um i've borrowed stuff from paul sometimes he'll he'll give me a box for my birthday or christmas which is great mm-hmm. so you know <laughs> It just, uh, it's all kind of showed up, and as it does, we try to proof it and um, make a note of it, because then I remember what I have, which is which is half the battle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I would imagine as you uh, increase your collections more and more, and I'm, I'm sure at the you know, longer you do this, over time, you know, you start to build a really comprehensive collection that folks starting out, you know, it just takes time, I would imagine. Yes. And it does. And I, you know, we, we st- when I was at my old studio, I, when I had a lot more time in life, which you'll appreciate now, like pre-kids and pre, <laughs> you know, responsibility and assets, uh, I would just set up proof cards of the type that I did have and organize it to make sense so that I could see it. And also it helps to show clients, you know, I have stars and I have them in these ranges and this size and and just started doing it when I had the time and thankfully kept at it. And it was a really good intern project. I've had a lot of interns over the years where they have to find that type. They have to set a line of it. They have to set it up on the press. They have to print these proof cards. And they don't have to be perfect because it's an in-studio project. It's not for a client, but Mm -hmm. it's a really good learning experience. And now we have these books of uh, ornaments and the typefaces that we have. 
so we can actually design things successfully because we can open it up and say, well, do we have Bernard Gothic 12? Yes, I do. Great. Let's use that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then also, if I don't have it, then I can have a note that when I'm out in the world, if I see it, I should buy it to round Mm -hmm. out the collection. So it's that's like touchy-feely stuff you figure out as you're going along, but having proof sheets of your type is a very worthwhile exercise because it forces you to work with your type more and understand how it comes together and understand what you have. And if you do all that, then you can use it successfully. Mm-hmm. So I always recommend that people do it when they're starting out. Just do something or even just put them all up put them all together on a galley. It doesn't have to be a fancy book and print them and use them as labels on your type cases, but then keep a hard copy where you can see all of the things you have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good idea. I'm I'm probably going to maybe go, go down to the studio and do that. We've only, I think we have four sets of type, maybe four or five Mm -hmm. total. Um, but that sounds like start a f- now. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> yep. It's going to be easier if you do it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, before we have acquired far too many uh, sets of type. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. Well, one last thing I wanted to ask you about uh, is teaching. Uh, I noticed uh-huh. you you seem to have uh, a, a strong bent towards wanting to perpetuate or letterpress education. You've got a fantastic section on your website called The Weekend Printer, and I know you, you've done a lot of teaching in your studio and, and elsewhere at, uh, I think, Penland. So talk to me about, I guess, just spreading the, the letterpress education. Uh, I do love teaching. Um, I would never want to do it full-time, nor would I want to commit to, uh, you know, semesters at different universities because that's just then you're getting bogged down with the boring parts like dealing with administration so Mm -hmm. uh, but doing the workshops and the intensive intensive I love doing it because um, selfishly for me it's great to be around other people I'm alone most of the time and then I can see how their brains work uh, in terms of how they piece things together and what kinds of projects are are appealing to other people and you know what what are they bringing as designers or printers or just regular people mm-hmm. um to the table in terms of how they function with the, these this limited finite material that's very physical and and I enjoy it a lot um and I do recognize that I don't always do everything right I do it in a way that gets a job done that's still safe for my equipment. And there are there's millions of ways that you can produce something uh, and it's still right and it's safe for you and your equipment and the materials you're working with. So I don't pretend to be the be-all and end-all of that knowledge, but I have learned a lot of things the really hard way. Mm-hmm. And I also don't like that people will put off trying to work with something because they don't understand it. So Mm -hmm. when I put out something like the weekend printer, it's to hopefully help people alleviate concerns about, well, I have this thing and I think it's cool, but I have no idea how to use it. And it's, if I have that knowledge, I'm going to put it out there. Um, I, I don't stand to gain from being selfish with that knowledge. I would not be where I am if people hadn't selflessly given of themselves for me to become a better designer and printer. Uh, And so I feel like it's my duty to share that information. Um, And I happily take emails and calls and questions and 
and share as much as I can. And uh, when I get to get out and teach in other places, I also get to touch all their cool stuff. So, (laughs) you know, I could see it and think, wow, this is so fascinating. I could do this and this. And, you know, and and I did teach at Penland this fall, and uh, and that was fantastic. And John Horn showed up, and he brought all these new borders and ornaments for everyone to play with. And that (laughs) that was a blast. And uh, in a couple weeks, I'm teaching a one-day workshop at the Kalamazoo Book Art Center in Michigan, and they have a beautiful collection of ornaments, and I can't wait to get in there and see <laughs> what everyone can pull out. So, you know, you get such a different crowd, and I've made some really great friends from teaching workshops. So it's a, it's a really great experience that, that I enjoy. But, yeah, I want to be accessible as much as possible. I've I've got nothing to hide. And... I think you learn from failing as much, if not more, than you do from your successful work and projects. So if there's fails that I can share with people, <laughs> then I'll put it out there. <laughs> like, yeah. You might not want to do this because this other thing is going to happen, and right. you want to maybe try to avoid that. Right. Trial, trial by fire. That has come up many yeah. times on this podcast. Uh, yeah, and it is. I will it say it is daunting. I mean, we we're, we're still very very new to letterpress. We've got quite a bit of equipment now uh, for ourselves, but it, it's sometimes it is daunting. I mean, it, just a couple of days ago, I've been feeling sort of a creative, I don't know, boundary, and I walked into the studio and I looked at everything and I just walked right back out. I I couldn't, you know, it was kind of overwhelming in that moment. Yeah, uh, because it's there's so much that you don't know. There's so much, you know, that it's like, well, what do I create? How do, what is this going to look like? Do I, how do I, uh, you know, use the type or use my designs? Uh, it can be really daunting at times. So the trial by fire, I think, is, is one of the most valuable but hardest to implement uh, pieces of advice. Um, do you find that people still come to letterpress who are, who are maybe new? I mean, do you, do you get a lot of sort of like, wait, you, you use what to print? Mm-hmm. Um, do you still get that maybe from people who, uh, you know, in common conversation or who maybe are outside the letterpress world still kind of don't really grasp what it is you do? Oh yeah. I still don't know. Like I could go to a party and not understand how to tell people what yeah. I do yes. and I, <laughs> because there's no, there's no title for it. I, you know, you say letterpress printer and then people do one of two things. They're like, Oh, that's great how much would it be for 500 business cards? And I'm like, I don't know. I yeah. put it on a PDF so I don't have to remember, you know, like right. look at the website and, you know, and see if you like the style or they say, oh, I love letterpress and I I really want to do this project. And then it comes out that what they want is a deep impression with polymer plates and I can't do what they want. And so that can be a misnomer. And mm-hmm. I say printmaker, but it's not like finer printmaking because I, I have a a lot of respect for that kind of work and I don't feel like I'm quite in there either so it's like this weird bastard stepchild still of all these other giant mediums and I don't really know how to say that so I don't even know what I say it depends on the crowd (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. that's that's definitely true I mean I I'm uh, my day job is in computer security you know and I tell my coworkers and friends and they're like wait what you, you do yeah. you, what you know that's like uh it, it you gotta see it you know and they're like okay <laughs> yeah yeah it's like like i yeah I have friends who work in user interface design and whatnot i'm like i don't even know how to describe what you do because i don't have the vocabulary <laughs> for it 
So there's yeah. there's definitely a bit of that. I almost hate getting asked those kinds of questions. So yeah, uh, but yeah, it's it's wacky. It's still pretty wacky, and um, you know you gotta just do what you can do and understand that the the market changes and people's tastes change, and you know, and you have to constantly go back to why are you doing it in the first place? And mm-hmm. I think about that all the time. Like I wrote myself this goofy juvenile business plan when I started the business for me personally, not to get any money or do anything mm-hmm. else. It was just like my own personal mission statement. And I did all of the things that were on there, but I think about it occasionally and go back to it and say, am I, am I doing that? Am I doing this for the right reasons still? Am I producing work that's challenging to me? And am I, doing the kind of work that I thought I might be doing. And if it's different kind of work, is it still within the same vein? Is it coming from the same spirit of why I like this? Mm -hmm. And I'd say 98% of the time it is. So I win. (laughs) That other 2% of those cards you loathe but continue to sell, right? (laughs) Yeah, or just to like, will I ever make money? No, I will always be poor, but I will be happily poor. And so that... That is okay, and that is the thing I think that you need to accept. This is not a money-making venture. Um, if you keep the lights on and there's food in everyone's mouths, you're doing you're doing really great mm-hmm. in this field. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. awesome. Well, Jen, yeah. thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Uh, this was a fantastic conversation. Where can folks find you on the interwebs? You can go to starshaped.com. Uh, and I like hanging out on the Instagrams too, and that's just at Star Shaped Press. Uh, those are the best ways, and people are um, can feel free to email me from the website or drop a question or anything. I'm bad at email, but I will get to it. And uh, if anyone has questions or anything, I'm always around. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Hey folks, Jen is awesome. I hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. I definitely did. Uh, To find links to some of the references made throughout our conversation, you can visit the show notes page for this particular episode at letterpressdigest.com forward slash 12. That's the number one, two. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time. 